and those they employ, travelers, bards, and those who remember to tip their delivery boy. My name is Grognard the Young, the Young Grognard. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Judd Beer. Now with less pulp. Alright, so tonight's episode, uh, you've got yours truly, the Dungeon Master, the Master Blaster, ready, coming at you heavy and faster. Uh, I'm presenting to you my main man, Ryan, for the second episode. I'm hoping to keep him around for a little bit longer, but I'm not really sure how much of the gold he's going to take from the party on this one. So, uh, Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us your experiences with tabletop games and sort of your whole, I don't know, established nerd cred. Uh, yeah, so I'm Ryan. Uh, like to go by Rye Growth. You would. Um, so I've been tabletop gaming for about two years now, seriously. Uh, I tried to put a couple games together in high school and when I was in college, but they sort of just fell through and I couldn't really get a group going. Um, so mostly D&D at this point, but I am looking to branch out into other tabletops. Uh, I've always sort of kept them on the periphery of my knowledge, uh, I kind of I've always enjoyed the idea of tabletop gaming, and I like hearing about them. I enjoy the stories, the lore, all the hard work that goes into setting up a world and experiencing it. Um, mostly gamer myself, so a lot of just PC gaming that kind of stuff. But I dabble in a bit of everything, try and be a real jack of all trades, which explains why I prefer the bard. So. Uh, not to make a painful transition here, but you and I are uh, pretty good friends. We've known each other for a couple of years now, and I'd like to say that you and I are a couple of characters. So without further ado, perhaps we should introduce today's topic. Uh, we're going to be talking today about characters and what makes a good one. So we brought a little bit of preparation to this episode, but we're going to try to keep it pretty fast and loose and fire from the uh, seat of our pants. A fart, if you will. Um, but so... I guess the easiest way to start this would be just to address the fact that I'm, I don't know if you guys can believe this, but I'm more of a dungeon master. I oftentimes usually take up the seat of running games and game mastering, uh, so I don't often get a lot of opportunities to play characters, but I find myself when I'm making a game uh, or designing a campaign world that I'm spending a lot of time focusing on how to make characters sort of the kind of characters I'd want to play, but also the kind of characters I'd like to see if I were a player in somebody else's campaign world. So I guess I come from a different side of the fence than you, uh, Ryan, since I figure you don't have much experience with running games in that that sort of way. And so we're both going to have sort of a different approach to what makes a good character. So um, it would seem that you and I agree pretty firmly, uh, and maybe this is almost somehow tangentially related to everything I just said a second ago, but you and I both agreed that of the top three things that we think make for a good character, it's very uh, important for characters to feel a supreme sense of a place in their world. Yeah, absolutely. And so I suggest that 
the two main things for me, and I know you mentioned that there was three things for you, but my two big things is I think a character should have some sort of an idea, or maybe the DM should have some sort of an idea of what that character will become and where they're going to end up, as well as where do they belong in the world. So for me, when I say what they will become, I mean, when we look at, you know, your typical fighter or ranger or paladin or something like that, typically we think of characters in a spectrum of levels. And we like to think of them as being sort of, you know, the fledgling fighter who fights with a a wooden shield and a rinky-dink rusty sword. And then we think, oh, well, in a few levels he'll have magic gear and he'll have special attacks and things. But I like to think instead what they will become in terms of titles or 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 granted uh, boons from other people. So what they will become will be something more of like, you know, head of a militia or leader of a town guard. And I think that a good character will have a sense of that direction instilled in them from the get-go, which I think implies that a character, uh, or a player rather, has sort of had that sort of foresight when uh, putting forward this character. Um... The second half of this whole belief that I have about a character having a good sense of place in the world is where do they belong? Which I guess you could put pretty simply as where do they belong? You could say stuff like their class or, you know, if they're nobility or if they're peasantry, criminals or what have you. Uh, But I also mean something like where do they belong? I mean, they're adventurers. So where they belong might be much more of a wayward or a vagabond of sorts. But it's very important for a good character to have that sort of established sense of where they belong. So that way, when they walk into town, they sort of know their ilk, and they know where they belong in that area. When they're dealing with the nobility, a player should have an idea of, you know, if they feel like this is a natural environment or an unnatural environment. And it just sort of establishes this idea that the world is living and breathing around them, and naturally all the marbles have sort of fallen in place, giving the world an established caste system of sorts or a a class system of sorts and the characters are not going against that grain in any regard and not really bending too many class roles or cast roles and I think that any good player character should have those two senses of a place in the world established so not to keep talking any further but why don't you go ahead and tell me about what you mean by a character having a, a sense in the, of a place in the world yeah so um, I think when you're drawing up a character, if you're having trouble kind of figuring out who they are, the best thing to do is just kind of come up with uh, three attachments they have to the world. Uh, just three nouns, you know, you find a person who means something to them, could be a mentor, a rival, someone who wronged them in the past, a place, uh, could be their village they came from, the monastery they trained at, maybe it was a old crashed ship that they used to play in as a kid, on the rocky shores with some other kids, something that, someplace that sort of was formative to them. And then uh, an event or something big that happened to them in their lives and sort of gave them that push to become an adventurer because uh, choosing to be an adventurer is insane for the most part, for most uh, people. It just doesn't really make sense to just pack up your bags and go out and just hit stuff till it dies and then hope someone rewards you for it. Um, I mean, I, I wonder if there's vocational technical schools that specialize in training people to go fight things from beyond your nightmares. Uh, but either way, sign me up. But um, what's neat about the list of three that you mentioned there is I don't know if you've ever heard of the uh, the writer and sort of internet presence in the uh, nerd space known as uh, Sly Flourish. 
but I believe I have. Sly Flourish is known for his Lazy Dungeon Master series, and he's written a lot of other books that are very specifically written with the idea of lessening the load on a player or a Dungeon Master's back when creating a good game or a good character. And it's really interesting that you mentioned the three things because he's sort of known well over for the concept of having three things for everything. Oh, you know, designing you a town. Punch, huh? You want three <laughs> locations, building any good adventure. You want three NPCs, three villains, and just having those three really help. So I think it's really neat that you also honed in on that. And I think there's sort of this belief that when you're making a really good character that they have to come to the table with ten pages of, of backstory ready to go and a history and a family tree and genetic pedigree all written out for you. But I think a lot of times the better characters that we have are the ones with just those three details. And you know, That actually segues pretty well into my second point, which would be uh, keep your backstory light and don't overshare. Uh, if you're coming in to this as a level one adventurer, you don't need to... Tell everyone your exploits of the past 10 years of your life. Um, and honestly, those exploits shouldn't be too unbelievable because you are level one. Um, and it if you keep your backstory light and you sort of just have a good sense of who your character is without going to the minutia of it, it does leave your character a lot more room to grow, which is something that Dan was mentioning earlier. Uh, and that is so important because D&D is a collaborative storytelling game and if your character's story is done at the beginning, then well, what are you doing at the table? Like, wh why are you here? It just, it kind of makes it more difficult for everyone else when your character is stubborn or can't move forward or choose to grow. I mean, I'm not saying that being stubborn is a bad character trait that can lead to some great role-playing opportunities. But I mean, I feel like the entire race of dwarves have done just fine with that <laughs> character trait being pretty well instilled on them. But it's just, they, you as a player can't be stubborn. You have to be kind of loose and able to adapt to what's happening and how it will affect your character. Yeah, and just to make a segue here, uh, I've been going by the name of Young Grognard for these whole one and a episode that's currently in recording. Uh, Brian just called me Dan. My name's Dan, everybody. Um, I don't think I've secret's ever out. actually, yeah, to false <laughs> my name, but uh, I, I guess the secret's out and i got to move to uh, Puerto Rico or Mexico or somewhere. I mean, somewhere tropical, hopefully. You know, um, I hear Hong Kong's nice right now. Yeah, you know, there's, yeah. I mean, so anyway, uh, but I completely agree that I think having that sort of light background is nice, but I think having a mysterious character for the reason of not telling everybody at the table your full backstory, I don't think it should be required when setting up for your first game, you know, the game zero, when everybody sits at the table and we have that, you know, freshman year uh, opening seminar in, in our uh, college class where the teacher has us go around, say our name, our major, what we're interested in, what we did last summer. I think at that point in time, there's almost an imperative for a player, or at least I think so, to not tell your whole backstory. It's good to have it written down, it's good to have it worked out with the GM, but I think there's some beauty to the fact that the the backstory of a character can come out naturally and organically over time. Meaning, at a certain point when you guys are saving a village from a bunch of pyromaniac goblins and you guys stumble across an orphanage that looks like it's completely conflagration ridden. It, it, it's toppling over. There's no chance of hope for those kids. But the party's paladin goes running in anyway. 
everybody's going to suspect it was because the paladin is a paladin and that's what paladins do. But what happens when that character comes out and lets out a nugget of their backstory that as a child they too lived in an orphanage, maybe even that orphanage. And I think it's really neat and it builds a level of like organic growth to a campaign and every character feels more alive there's almost suspense to the characters it's kind of almost like uh, some sort of a long-winded marriage where they're talking about you know there's no real excitement anymore between the characters there's no you know secrets held anywhere in there uh as much as i want to reference the office on that one i'm gonna let that one go um but yeah and uh, my second point that i have written down on here is uh, pretty well established by the 5th edition of the game, which I think is great that 5th edition wrote right on the front cover of character sheets that they need to have, you know, bonds and flaws and ideals. and So I think that a pretty simple way of looking at it is you need to have a really solid strength established for your character. Even if that's something so simple as an ability score, I think that a player should have a really good idea of how to hone in on that that strength and really embody it when they're role-playing. So if your barbarian happens to be the toughest character in the group, when he has somebody swing at him with a broadsword, cleaves in at him, and misses, why not say he did get hit, but he shrugs off the damage? Or if a character is so strong that they manage to win in a wrestling check, why not ask the DM if you can say something terrible happened, like you pop a bone out of a joint of the other guy just out of your brutal strength? You know? What if... You know, we all we all assume that a wizard who has a high intelligence is probably going to be role played with a really broad vocabulary and probably talk all snotty and Urkula ish, if you would. But I think it's really important to sort of embody those strengths. That way, you sort of brand yourself as being the blank character in the group. But you also, underneath that, have all the other qualities that come out slowly over time and let you flourish and let you be that simple as the strong one or the tough one. But all the other integral elements are what lead to hours of storytelling for all your friends about how, oh, in that last game, Character Blank did this, and oh, we all thought he was just the big tough guy, but it turns out he's really sensitive, too. And I think that that's really important. Um, but additionally, I think having a solid flaw is very important, and I'm really glad that the 5th edition of the game makes it a point to address a flaw, but I don't think that they address flaws all that well. Uh, in, in the player's handbook, and I think they have sort of misleading flaws on there. Some of them feel like story arcs and not necessarily flaws. The concept of a thief owing some crime lord a lot of money and being on the run doesn't feel like a flaw so much as the backstory for half of the thieves that have ever been a thief ever. I think that a good flaw needs to follow these few rules. A good flaw needs to be present every once in a while. If you're in an aquatic campaign and your character can't swim or is afraid of water, that feels like you're kind of railroading the game to be a game of let's invent swimmies for our hydrophobic barbarian. Um, but I think a flaw should also not be a negligible and sort of like throwaway kind of thing. You know, I don't think it should be a fear of pizza in a world with no pizza. I feel like that seems kind of obvious why you shouldn't have that. But I think a good flaw is something that comes up every once in a while and lets the character seem more human, no pun intended there, but seem more alive and more realistic that, you know, maybe your barbarian who's seven feet tall, I keep going back to barbarians, maybe there's some sort of like a Freudian thing going on here, but... It's um, all the posters of barbarians I have around the room. I mean, there's a lot of very burly <laughs> half-naked men. It's the pecs that are staring at me that scare yeah. me the most, but, you know... Uh, Think, listen. It... <laughs> 
a lot of man of war going on in here. But um, but no, I, I mean, if you're playing as a, a barbarian who's six and a half feet tall, some real like you know Rogar barbarian guy who's six and a half, seven feet tall, maybe make him claustrophobic. You know, that's a flaw that'll come up every once in a while. Don't make it crippling claustrophobia, but when the party has to crawl through a tube when they're trying to escape from some sort of, I don't know, otherworldly prison, it might be really important and really thematic and really interesting and cinematic, rather, that the barbarian needs to be sort of knocked out to get through the tubes because he just cannot will himself to go through it. You know, I had a barbarian once who had this exact flaw, and when they were trying to sneak into a secret downstairs room in some inn, he couldn't fit down the well pipe because he just could not will himself. He was just so afraid of that tight, confined space that the party just left him up top. When the guards came looking for where the party had gone, they walk in the room, and there's just a loincloth wearing... Uh, those yeah, the pecs are back. Um, mm. Barbarian alone in the room, and... <laughs> And he had to somehow try to come up with some excuse why he was alone in the back room and the door was locked. It leads to good role-playing, it leads to interesting situations, and it makes for a more interesting and realistic character that you can care about. Nobody likes a Mary Sue. Don't let friends play Mary Sue. Um, Or Gary Sue. So I think I've kind of alluded to my third point here, which I'm just going to address just so we can get it out of the way, but my third point is just a good sense of the mannerisms and behaviors of a character and just make them sort of realistic. It's it's all fine and dandy when you play races like gnomes and dwarves to have almost a comical level of, of I don't know, um, grumpiness or, or over-the-top silliness at times, but I think that there's something to be said about how bringing everything back to something of a dramatic dialogue and bringing everything back to a sense of a cinematic always makes the game feel more enjoyable and you can get more into the characters. The theater of the mind really has its stage lights come on when you play characters that you can sort of feel their presence. That whole uh, hypothetical D&D nirvana when everybody stops thinking they're at a table and everybody embodies their characters and I finally have my glistening pecs. but when we're playing our character, it, it's fun to have them have really well-explained mannerisms. I like to think whenever I'm designing a character and I'm coming up with their description, I like to come up with sort of what it looks like when they walk into the bar. How do they sit down? How do they order a drink? How do they deal with somebody who's staring at them across the way? And I think already anybody who plays a character in D&D is already thinking in their head of how a certain character might actually behave in those instances. And I think because that's such a normal thing in D&D, if you can imagine that characters end up in a bar at some point in a tavern, and somehow they end up drinking or something or getting into a fight, if you can imagine this situation, we can imagine why this all comes so naturally to describe. But my point here is that it's good to sort of flesh out that kind of like unimportant behavior right there. While we all like to think of how our wizard looks when they're throwing a fireball, I mean, how does your wizard light their pipe? How does your wizard eat meat? How does your wizard order a drink? And I think these sort of in-between behaviors, when they're really fleshed out, make for a wonderful character. Uh, not to bring up somebody who's super popular here, but Drista Worden as a good example. We can all imagine anybody who's a big fan of that series can think in their head, how does he order a drink? I mean, being a drow, he's obviously treated in many instances like an evil monstrosity come to the surface, which 
you know, I guess you can make the argument he was. But anyway, the point is, is that he's soft-spoken. We can imagine how he asks for a drink. He's polite. He's he's there in presence, very warm and very honorable and very respectful. And so, just thinking of how they do that, it kind of almost influences what they look like when they fight or what they look like in political discourse with the king of the orcs. You know. But enough rambling about that. So, Ryan, did you have another point? Um, I guess one of the points I'd bring up is you can't plan too far ahead in your character's future because it's a collaborative game and you never know what everyone else at the table is going to be doing or how that's going to affect the way your character grows. But I think when you're making a character, you should have some idea of it and this is a 5th edition thing, of what subclass they're going to be going and why they end up with that subclass. I think that subclass speaks volumes oftentimes to the way a character fights or interacts with the world and can be another opportunity to really just give them some good flesh on the bones, like to bring out more of what they are. So if you're a fighter and... Bar- barbarian. Uh, if you're a barbarian... With glistening packs. And you have very glistening pecs, but you decide to go with the totem warrior. Maybe you cover up those pecs with some uh, bear tattoos because you decided to pick the bear spirit as your uh, guiding spirit. Or if you're a barbarian and you're going um, with the berserker, instead of covering up those pecs, you you uh, expose your leg pecs to everybody. <laughs> And really I'm just pretty get, sure that's anatomically correct. The and, leg, and leg you, packs. And you just get it all out there, like no just <laughs> fury in the wind, as they say. So I mean, that 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 is what I've nicknamed my phallic friend here. Um, but anyway, fury in the wind and I are very happy with our lives. But um, so, are you suggesting that the characters? I mean, honestly, I kind of greatly disapprove of fifth edition for the way that they've marked out and, and planned out the archetypes and character designs for that, the subclasses, as it were. I kind of hate that, because I feel like if you're playing a character, this is an example my friend Anthony brought up, but he was talking about how one of his friends was playing an Eldritch Knight, a uh, character in 5th edition of the game, uh, a fighter archetype that has certain arcane spells, but they get them at level 3. So one has to ask the question, I mean, were they training for years before adventuring and they never knew how to cast spells, but all of a sudden after going on quests, they learn how? Or do they always know how, they just choose never to use it? Well, you know, and see, it, I just feel like because you can't answer that question comfortably, it falls upon the DM to sort of make some kind of ruling on that, which I'm fine with, but I just feel like the People behind the Wizards of the Coast sort of set themselves up to shoot themselves in the foot on that one. Well, I, I think, especially with the Eldritch Knight, where it's you're suddenly dabbling into almost another class entirely, that is something you should let your DM know at when you're starting a character that you plan to go the Eldritch Knight route so they can, at some point in those first three levels of questing, work in some sort of story beat where, for whatever reason, your character maybe is exposed to. Uh, untapped uh, arcane energies or they come across an artifact that imbues them with this knowledge they never had before or something like that so it it does give your there is a way to work into the story and that can be a good role-playing opportunity for everybody involved you just have to set out to do it at some point and i think that it that makes it more fun for the rest of the party when they're like oh well our fighter picked up that weird rock earlier and it grafted itself to his head and that was a bit odd. He's got like a third eye now. But, I mean, 
nothing doing. He seems fine. And then, you know, one level later, he's out there just blasting people with uh, magic missiles while also stabbing them really hard. See, and I guess for me, I think... Well, okay, I'll say two things. One, I don't like that level of of flimsiness that appears in a storyline. Because I feel like any sort of major change where a character who's some kind of knight all of a sudden starts casting spells, I just feel like it's almost kind of... Kind of... I don't want to say irresponsible as a DM to just kind of slap that kind of archetype onto a character and just explain it with one single instance. But it feels kind of difficult to... To explain that all away in a way that feels tightly knit and well-placed. I almost feel like the thing that could really help with a game like this would be... I think it was one of the original editions of the game. But there was some sort of supplemental rule that when you leveled up, you needed to actually see some sort of a professional in your class's trade, I guess? Career? I don't know. This goes back to Adventurer's Vocational Technical High School. But... Going to the people who originally trained you in order to yeah, hit that second course. level of experience. It almost feels like if you were playing in a game setting where you had to visit your trainer in order to level up, that arcane knight there, the eldritch knight, would make so much more sense. Because then after a few weeks of adventuring with your party and you know killing the orc king and slaying the... I don't know, the heathen orcs in the north, you go back home to the citadel where you were training in the arcane knowledge that you have now, and all of a sudden they bestow upon you a true arcane focus, or they teach you how to truly unlock that magical skill. Your character spends a week there in training and comes back out with some fledgling spells. That feels so perfect to me, and it makes the world feel like it's alive and breathing, but the problem is, is... You know, it, it's like, I don't know, having a day job and trying to play in a D&D night and having a family at home. Who has the time for that? Who can just plan in the middle of a campaign, oh, well, my Eldritch Knight's going to need Friday night off. I have to go in for my wizardry class. Um, and then I have my feminist basket weaving class on, on Tuesday. Didn't you, didn't you say you were taking uh, night courses? <sighs> but Um, But anyway... Uh, yeah, uh, so I think I think the second point I can bring up here, I think, uh, uh, would be the fact that any good character, and this is going to sound so cheesy, but any good character has a really great DM behind them that helps weave every bit of their creativity into the quilt that is the game world. And I think that if you have a dungeon master who's very strong-headed about everything and very much so in their own lane, and they don't like to share their storyline or their world, your characters are always going to come out stale and two-dimensional. If you have a dungeon master that doesn't like gnomes and has carved out no place in the world for a gnome to be a character, I think that it's pretty safe to say that your gnome is really never going to shine. And it's unfortunate, because gnomes rule. And And yeah, I mean, at that point, you're... Your DM has created a whole world, and your party is just little stickers that he's putting on top of it, and they could be anybody at that point. If he's not willing to work with you and the player characters to involve them in the story in a meaningful way that means something not just to him in the story he's trying to tell, but also to you and your character, then yeah, it's it's never going to really feel like you're actually involved. You're just there for the ride, and it could have been anybody. See... And I almost, and this is something that's going to have to be a rant for a different episode because holy cajoli, I could go on for three hours about this. But I think that there's something to be said about how 
games need to find that happy balance of being character driven and being DM storyline driven. Because I feel Absolutely, like in the example yeah. you just provided right there, that sounds like it's too DM driven, where the DM has their entire storyline written out in their head and they just kind of want people to act it out in front of them. Sort of like they wrote up a screenplay and they handed their scripts to everybody and said, play my game and pretend like you actually have a say here. But I think the opposite which I think is just as toxic and just as tragic, is to have a game where the players dictate and direct everything. Where people are allowed to play crazy, wild combinations of classes and races and backstories, and it just feels like it stops being a game of adventure and more of a game of how do we explain our half-drow monkey mummy dragon sorceress? Like, how do we explain that this character is here? You know, how do we explain why we have a drow in a city that hates drow? Like, it stops being about the storyline and starts being more about everything about the characters and how each one of them... Pardon my grognardiness here in saying this, but it starts to feel like characters are snowflakes, you know? And everybody's so unique and perfectly individualized because you wrote up your ten pages of backstory. It just stops feeling like there's a storyline here and it just starts feeling like a narrative following your character. But I think at the end of all this ranting and raving, we can agree that a good character, a character that's got class, and a character that's got true character to them, if, if you will, uh, but uh, has to be a living and breathing character who just sort of exists in the world. And I think it, we just make them relatable, as relatable as a dwarfish wizard could be, um, if you allow dwarfish wizards, I guess. But... Yeah, so uh, this is something, uh, unless you had any other further points about making a good character. Uh, no, I don't really think I can have anything to add. I guess I would just say, um, before that first session, as uh, Dan was mentioning earlier, do some role-play in your head to kind of figure out the way your character walks, the way he interacts. If he found a lost child in the street, what would they do if she gets separated from her companions how does she handle it those kind of things um and it'll give you some understanding of who the character is and help you better off as you enter that first session i completely agree and i think something we've kind of avoided here in this whole discussion but i think has been pretty natural is the concept of alignment and we haven't really addressed that yeah whatsoever but it's definitely something we're going to talk about in a later episode because nothing gets people fired up more than the concept of alignment. But, yeah, so without further ado, it's time to introduce a new segment. Um, I mean, are we allowed to have a new segment if it's only two episodes? I feel like the second episode you're not legally allowed to. I'm going to have to ask somebody about that. Um, or not. I don't think I'm asking anybody. Uh, I'm going to throw caution to the wind and just say... Uh, Here's a new segment. Um, what I want to do for the podcast is because I'm going to be featuring a lot of my friends. Uh, Ryan's kind of a friend, I guess. Uh, he did call me Dan and ruin my facade of being just the young Grognard. We, if... we can edit that out. We can get that in post. Well, you know what? I like my character to remain kind of <laughs> mysterious, if you will. Um, but... <laughs> But, okay, so here's what I want to do. Since we're going to have a lot of my other friends and people who have played with me in the past on the podcast, I'm hoping that we can introduce something of 
game shows, uh, like game shows from yesteryear, and include sort of themes from old game shows, certain rules, things like The Price is Right and Family Feud and other things that I might get sued for for dropping their actual name on the air. But uh, So today I'm going to do a very light trivia game, uh, and what I'm going to say is we'll make a wager here. There's five trivia questions I have, and if you can get at least three of the five of these correct, I'm going to give you something that acts as sort of a cliffhanger for future episodes. It's called a nardi. And a nardi, a grog nardi, uh, a nardi is a magical point that may be used in a later live play podcast episode. Maybe a point of, uh, an inspiring point of some kind or sort. Uh, but anyway, so without further I can't ado, how we work that into the system? You're dreaming too big here. Yeah, I'm dreaming way too big. We're gonna have to swap over to Gerps and just hate everybody <laughs> and everything. You know, honestly, I think Gerps is a pretty underrated system. Okay, I think it's kind of beautiful if you happen to be both obsessive compulsive and hate your life and your players. I, it's just a system for everybody who is a nihilist and yeah. Anyway, it, it's very popular in the BDSM groups. <laughs> yeah. You know, GURPS always sounded kind of like a sort of dirty word to begin with. Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't know. there's connotations there that it's just... My only can't... question is, who has the GURPS? Do men have GURPS or do women have GURPS? It's 2019. Anyone can have GURPS. Come on. You know, the grognard is willing to work with anyone who wants to say that they happen to own GURPS. But... Um, okay, so yeah, I'm going to be doing some wonderful sound effects. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce to the Young Grognard Trivia Game Show our first contestant, Mr. Ryan. So, uh, Ryan, uh, how nice of you to come on to the podcast. Uh, really nice to have you here. Uh, but today, we're going to have some trivia questions for you. As I've already said before, three out of the five questions, if you get them correct, you will get yourself a golden nerdy. Absolute value of uh, 0.00 gold pieces. Uh, yeah. So the first question I have for you is a bit of trivia uh, related to Mr. Gary Gygax himself. So uh, there was a module released in the beginning of uh, TSR called Dungeonland. It was sort of an Alice in Wonderland-esque kind of game. And it featured pretty much everything Alice in Wonderland had as a story, but they never came right out and said it. This... Uh, this module is pretty infamous for being kind of a wacky and weird Gygaxian style sort of fun dungeon kind of thing. And so a lot of people have a strong love for it. But in the end, it's sort of an obscure title that not many people know. So my question for you is, a signed copy of the module ended up on eBay. And I want you to tell me what the buy it now price tag was for this module. Was it A, $100, B, $2,750 or wait did I say B or C C $5,250 USD American gold pieces uh, I'm gonna have to go with um, let's go with B B feels safe $2,750 are you sure you want to say that did you, did you say that yeah I'm gonna stick with B all right, Ryan got it correct. Indeed, the the current buy it now price for that uh, module, which maybe this X has a free advertisement for that guy's post on there. So, guy, uh, if you happen to sell this obscure module signed by Mister Gary Gygax for twenty seven fifty, I uh, do expect about ten percent of the proceeds. So that's one point uh, towards Ryan. Um, just a question: If you happen to get 
three out of five of them correct in a row. Will you play all five of the questions anyway for the oh, sake yeah, of, of my wacky internet efforts and maybe not let me cry tonight? And um, I, I just like showing how good I am at completely guessing trivia questions I have no idea the answer to. So It only hurts a little bit. Yeah. Only, only when I cry. Um, so, <laughs> next question. Which of these were never made in the history of Dungeons & Dragons as far as my research can tell? A. Dungeons & Dragons Shrinky Dinks. B, Dungeons and Dragons breakfast cereal, or C, a Dungeons and Dragons beach towel. It's got to be the beach towel. C. Unfortunately, the beach towel was made, and there was a small series with a few different lines of these beach towels. I just can't believe that. What's hilarious is that they only made it in the early TSR days, so it's all the original like illustrations. So you have some really fucked up looking like it, it almost <laughs> looks like what owlbears children would draw at owlbear school and, and bring home as a picture of. Like, Put that right like, up on the fridge, you know. <laughs> Um, but anyway, yes, the one that was never made was the uh, breakfast cereal, which I'm not saying we should have a Dungeons and Dragons breakfast cereal, but it I am really, saying even like the stupid cartoon didn't get a breakfast cereal. I'm sorry yeah. if you love the cartoon and you're listening. Oh no, I love that cartoon yeah, with a passion. I just, I, that Look, that was a Dungeons and Dragons ride. <laughs> that that was prime turn <laughs> anything into a cartoon slash cereal time. Right. So as far as my Google search went, I didn't see no cereal anywhere. And I searched for like a whole 30 seconds. And it's the fact that they made those beach towels so early on in Dungeons I mean, and Dragons. I mean, like, I think it was about who, like... Who did they think they were selling it to? Who was playing Dungeons and Dragons at the time and going to the beach? I mean, I would say the same thing about the D&D Shrinky Dinks, but I kind of feel like it'd be pretty dope to have a D&D Shrinky Dink like, necklace or something. I feel like that'd be pretty yeah, dope. Yeah, that just seemed right up... Wizard Alley, because I feel like that was after Wizards bought them. They were like, yeah, we'll turn into Shrinky Dinks. No, this was TSR. Both Damn. products were TSR. Damn. In fact, Wizards of the Coast pretty much came in and were like, all right, knock that weirdo shit off. <laughs> you guys are a game. No Shrinky Dinks. And they're like, what about a breakfast cereal? And they're like, nah, someday there'll be a podcast and we'll correct some kid on it. Um, but anyway, uh, so the next question, a uh, bit of a lore question for the D&D worlds here. Uh, a Greyhawk question, if you will. But it seems to have transcended all the different editions. Uh, with such a magic spell uh, cast in slinging fella known as Mordenkainen. Uh, Mordenkainen was originally Gary Gygax's son's character. True or false? False. That wasn't his son's character. No. Damn. You are correct. It was, in fact, Gary Gygax's actual character himself. It was made for one of the games where he somehow wasn't the Dungeon Master, but he happened to love his own character so much that he demanded it be made the leader of a certain citadel of protectors, but he was so cool that Mordenkainen actually became Mordekainen and the Citadel of Eight. He was so cool, he became the leader. Um, other important characters in that group include Irag, which is Gary backwards, because Gary Gygax, for all of his creative glory, couldn't come up with a name uh, if it was his own name backwards. But anyway, okay, so these two questions I have for you uh, are pretty interesting if you like numbers, which if you don't, uh, don't play GURPS. Stay far away from GURPS. <laughs> just, run, just run from GURPS right now. In fact, most games, except for 5th edition. 5th edition's pretty cool about numbers. But anyway, as of 2018... The website DungeonVault.com posted a, a, uh, a research study where they looked at how many people 
they could find that were playing D&D at this current point in time. They searched over Roll20.com. They searched on all these different websites and forums and did a real large search just to try to find how many people actually played the game. And then they broke down the demographics for which edition and whatnot. But anyway, so for as far as how many players go, A, was it 3.7 million Dungeons & Dragons players of all editions at this point? 5.8 million or 13.7 million players? I think 13.7. I feel like the game has been really blowing up. Yeah. There there was a roving mob of laughing people there. I'm going to say it was a gibbering mother who happened to see somebody slip on a banana peel uh, backstage. (laughs) It's a real madhouse here on the set, um, if we had a set. But yes, it is actually 13.7 million. Now, as a follow-up question, they actually found the answer to this one, too. But how many people, approximately... Of that 13.7 million, are Dungeon Masters? A, 850,000 people, B, 1.5 million, or C, 3 million players as Dungeon Masters? Uh, wrong, wrong, oh, wrong. No, 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 no Nardi for you. Uh, okay, fine. Yeah, I'm going to go with, uh, I think it's going to be A. I feel like they're just still a very rare breed. 850,000. That's what you said, right? Unfortunately, you're wrong. But weirdly enough, if you look at the numbers, I mean, I know the math isn't perfect on here, but if you think about how many players are in your average D&D group, it's somewhere around four to five players Mm -hmm. plus one Dungeon Master, right? Mm -hmm. So what's neat is when you think that there's 13.7 million players of the game... Having three million dungeon masters sort of divides that up pretty neat, so that yeah, it's like one in four point five players is a dungeon master, which I think that math is really sick. But uh, I'm also from New England, so sick is a good thing. So yeah, it's wicked cool. Yeah, wicked, wicked, wicked smart, kid. Um, but yeah, so um, in that case, uh, we have a winner, our good pal Roger. Here, I'll do it again just for you. Um, but yeah, so with that, uh, Rygra, you have in fact won your Nardi. Uh, the first Nardi ever given. It has absolutely no value. Uh, perhaps we could do the sixth trivia question. How much is that Nardi worth on eBay? Um, the answer is nothing. Uh, a solid nothing. But I, I'm not upset about this, uh, yet. Someday I'm sure it'll be worth its weight in gold. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, that is the end of the podcast. Um... Uh, we ran a good 40 or so minutes, and I think that that makes sense for a dry run and running it around here. I'm trying to make sure that the podcast can be sort of a commute length of time. I think that this makes sense that you could break it up into two little chunklets, two 20-minute segments. That way you get your drive in, your drive home, or whatever it is that you do for 41 minutes. Hell, maybe go to the BDSM club, find out where your gerps are. Take out your D&D beach towel, lay it out on the beach, and just have a nice tan. 40 minutes. It's the perfect time. 20 minutes each side. Make sure you flip it 20 minutes through, or else you get that sogginess on the bottom, and it really messes with your gerps. Yeah, and you want those grill marks, so. (laughs) You want them grill marks. Um, But yeah, so ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have here. Uh, Be sure to tip your dungeon master, roll a 20 for somebody, and I don't know. Goodbye, Rod. Do you have any final thoughts? Anything you want to say? Uh, no. I mean, I think I might get this uh, Nardi framed and put it up uh, next to all my barbarians, right, right between the pecs. I'm thinking. 
It's going to look good there. It's going to glisten. It, it kind of reminds me of that scene in the Spongebob movie where David Hasselhoff manages to like, squeeze and shoot the burger underwater. Or, or was it, I think it was just Spongebob and Patrick. But I'm hoping that's where, where somebody could fit their nardy. Uh, per, you know what? Perhaps GURPS are pecs, and you could put your, your, your nardy between my GURPS. And on that note, I think it's time we wrap it up. So, without further ado, goodbye, everybody.